0: In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, And if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Hello, listening friends. Uh, Just a quick update. Kenyatta and I, um, well, we're taking some time off. It's summer. And we thought with everything going on in the world today with how they're wanting to teach um, black history in the state of Florida, and then also in the state of Oklahoma, after the recent um, statements by the Superintendent of Public Education about the Tulsa race massacre, we thought we would throw up a couple of our old episodes that highlight um, the hist- or uh, highlight some black history and so um, we hope you enjoy um, having two episodes. Uh, this particular week. And um, yeah, I'm going to use the same intro on both of them. So thanks. Have a great day. As everyone knows, February is Black History Month, and the podcast is taking part in honoring Black history. Of course, our viewpoint is, is that Black history is American history, and we all need to know about it. But since there's a month, we're going to honor it and highlight things that are part of black history, even if it's in a small way. So, with that being said, joining us today is Dr. Bob Blackburn. And when it comes to Oklahoma history, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified and knowledgeable than Dr. Bob. He's the author of many, many books and spent 20-plus years as the director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, which means he had 12-plus years with the pleasure of being my boss <laughs> but and it was he, a pleasure oh, well thank you he guided the historical the historical society through the building of the, the new oklahoma history center and he got the funding for the brand new ok pop museum started which will be one of the nation's first museums dedicated to pop culture and if you know anything about the Oklahoma legislator, legislature, getting them to throw some money at something is quite difficult. <laughs> so anyway, here's uh, Dr. Bob. He's going to talk for just a few minutes, and then we'll get to the, the purpose of his being on the show. Well, thank you, Jack. It's good to be with you and
1: appreciate all the work you do for the Historic Preservation Office and in keeping uh, that that federal it's a federal program a lot of people don't understand that that we administer a lot of rules and in generally uh our response to most requests is probably no you can't do this you can't do that well that's never fun for someone to hear but our historic preservation staff that's been around since the early 1970s does a great job of that and you've been a, a good addition to that working with with Linda and Pam and Melvin and all the others, Well, thank you. Uh, but Jack, when I think about Black History Month, I like to think about the subject both in terms of the history that we need to study and understand and research and and have dialogue, but I also think of it in terms of personal relationships, and I always like to make history personal if possible, and in, in this particular case, studying the impact of racism in Oklahoma is very personal for me because I was born in 1951 in a very segregated community where uh, black students could not go to school with white students mm-hmm. in 1951 when I was born. And I was raised in a time period when uh, the N-word was used very easily in many families, including my own, which is Southern on both sides. The attorneys came from South Carolina, to Arkansas and Oklahoma. The Blackburns from Virginia to Texas to the Cherokee Nation and Southern tradition uh, included Mm -hmm. an acceptance and and really a defense of segregation as a positive Mm -hmm. good. Uh, That was kind of the irony of that. Well, I was raised in those circumstances and really not aware of segregation's impact on individuals because I was never around African-American students. Growing up in Edmond, we had zero black families here. It was a sunset town. Mm -hmm. Uh, Black families uh, for decades had known they're not supposed to be in that town after the sun goes down or there would have been consequences. Well, that carried through to the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And even though Brown versus Board of Education desegregated schools theoretically in 54, took a long time. And in Edmond uh, and at where I graduated finally at Putnam City in 1969, I can remember how exactly how many black students we had, it was zero. Mm-hmm.
0: I never went wow. to school
1: with an African-American until I got to college in 1969. Well, for me, coming from that lack of understanding, and part of that was I had no observation of the impact. I did not know the impact on the other kids. I knew there were Black people in the world. You see them around the community, mm-hmm. played against them in football, but really did not understand the full meaning of segregation. And then when I got to college, my eyes were opened, of course. I had black friends at Southwestern State College in in Weatherford. Uh, It really started changing on graduate school. I took a course in black history. Uh, Dr. James Smallwood was a professor and he used a book that is one of my my fundamental touchstones on understanding history. And it's written by Mm -hmm. one of of America's greatest historians of all time who just happened to be born in Rentiesville, Oklahoma, raised in Tulsa graduate of Booker T. Washington High School there, uh, Dr. Uh, John Hope Franklin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and his family roots in Oklahoma go back to slavery in the Choctaw Nation. His his father was the son of a freedman and a rancher, uh, and so John Hope wrote this book From Slavery to Freedom, Knopf, uh, had that written in the 1950s, and in that book, it, it it gave me context and a structure to understand the experience and the impact. Mm-hmm. Of racism, on a large section of, of Americans, and not just the impact on on Black Americans, but on us white Americans, I really mm-hmm. quickly came to the realization that it was our loss that we did not have the advantage of working with talented Black people. We did not have the advantage of of learning uh, the, about cultural diversity and and how that can enrich our lives. And so I started feeling like I had been denied certain mm-hmm. opportunities. So coming out of college. I was a bit of, a, of a, a zealot in terms of black history. And in 1979, with the PhD in hand, I was lucky enough to get the job as editor of the Chronicles of Oklahoma. So
0: mm-hmm. that makes
1: over 40 years the historical society, exactly 42 years. But for 10 years, I was editor and I was determined to publish histories about black history. And anytime I could find a scholar, I would badger them to produce something. If I got something even mediocre, I would work on it myself and rewrite and work with the author to strengthen it, uh, Rudy Halliburton, I'll never forget a professor at Northeastern, wrote an article about the Tulsa race riot, as we called it then, now Massacre, published that in the mid-80s, and then Scott Ellsworth published his book, LSU Press, on on uh, the massacre, and he wrote some stories for me, and so I was an advocate there, and, and then became the first staff member of the Black Heritage Committee of the OHS mm-hmm. in the 80s. We really had not had a staff member dedicated to it, uh, Alice Everett was the first chairman on the board, and then along came Zella Patterson, Major Rose, and then one of my mentors, a lady named um, uh, well, good grief, uh, Rudy Ruby Hall. And Mrs. Hall uh, had been a pioneer of the of the desegregation movement trying mm-hmm. to integrate not only our schools but but culture in general. And Mrs. Hall opened minds. We did exhibits on slavery at the old historical building. We did exhibits. On, uh, on other aspects of black history. And so by the time I became director in 98, uh, I had developed some close friendships with collectors like Curry Ballard, who had loaned us his collections because we had no collection. We had to start from scratch. And reaching out to the community. And then my first hire as executive director in 1998 was to hire Bruce Fisher, mm-hmm. uh, a black Oklahoman who was the son of Ada Lois Fisher, one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement. And Bruce had a master's degree in history, had worked uh, in the Secretary of State's office and was one of those people who had uh, a presence in the black community. And whereas I had had trouble convincing black Americans that we were really serious about it. Once Bruce jumped in and says, I am going to be a partner in this, then all of a sudden the pieces started coming together. The collection started coming in. Dr. Finley's collection, and then the Clara Luper collection, which is the largest probably of them, but Jimmy Stewart's collection. And it goes on and on with the families who had collected all this stuff and had it. And so they say, yes, we need to share it, knowing that we were sincere. Mm-hmm. And when we opened the History Center in 2005, with Bruce's help, the second largest exhibit in the entire building, after American Indians, was the story of African-Americans in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And by then yeah. we had the collections. We knew we had the stories. And I'll never forget, we did a, a preview opening for the black community before we opened to the legislators and the donors and the people who helped me raise $12 million. We said, we want our African-American neighbors to come in and see this. We had 800 people come in for this preview. Mm-hmm. And they got to go through that exhibit. And Mrs. Looper was still alive and healthy at the time. And I'll never forget, we featured Clara in the exhibit, of course. she yeah, we had her living office, room. Yeah, room we, room have furniture. <laughs> we do. We have her furniture. and her Scrabble board. But at that time, we did a reproduction of the cat's drugstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Counter where she led those kids in 1958 for that first sit-in. And she sat on one of those stools and greeted every one of those 800 members. She had a permanent smile on her face. People felt like they were in touch with history. And it made it real. Mm-hmm. So that's partly my history. And then I had the good fortune to be asked to be chairman of the Tulsa Race Right Commission, created by the legislature mm-hmm. and signed by the governor, supported by the governor at the time in 1998. And we took two years. And with a healthy budget, we were able to hire young historians, old historians. We had money to, to explore, to offer bounties for information that had been missing. We took every one of those urban myths. We took anybody's suspicions and said, well, let's pursue it. Let's mm-hmm. turn over every rock we can. We have the resources to do it. And that doesn't happen often. But in this case, Scott Ellsworth, the author of the book, became a consultant. We had other consultants. Uh, John Hope Franklin came back for my first meeting to endorse it mm-hmm. and let the community know this is a real deal. I know Dr. Blackburn. This is the real thing. Curry Bowler was on that commission, other leading community people. And we spent two years. And out of that came an even better understanding. Uh, Not just the Tulsa race massacre, but why did it happen? Why was nothing done about it? What is the legacy and how are we dealing with that today? So sorry, I've gone on so long for this introduction, Uh, but over the next 45 (laughs) minutes or so, whatever is remaining, we can explore some of the causes, what happened Mm -hmm. that fateful day and night, and then uh, how are we dealing with that today?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Just real quick. I grew up on uh, Air Force bases, so I grew up in super diverse environment. And I look at that as something great for me. I feel like it gave me a better perspective of the world. And my other podcast, Kenyatta and Jack Save the World, um, went to elementary with Kenyatta, and it's very rare for military brats to go to elementary and graduate together because people move and i had kenyetta as a guest on the podcast and we enjoyed it so much we started the other one and hearing Kenyatta's perspective as a as a black woman has made me a better person just in general talking to her for an hour every day or you know once a week when we record has made me a better person so i understand how your perspective of it was the white community that missed out. So I I understand that. (laughs) I understand Mm that. Well, thanks for sharing that. And um, going ahead here, um, as you may have figured out, we're gonna talk about one of, in my opinion, the darker moments of American history, the Tulsa Race Massacre. And you might wanna have a box of Kleenex handy. Because there's some not good things that are going to be discussed here, but it's important that we know about it. So, I'm going to give it to Dr. Bob, and if if I have a question, I'll try to interrupt him to ask it and take her away. (laughs) Okay.
1: Well, of course, as a historian whose motto is connect the dots of history, I try to help people connect the dots. It's just not an isolated event and too often history in high school and even college is taught that way this Mm -hmm. isolated set of facts and figures and dates that you're supposed to memorize Uh, but it should be more than that it should start with the causes and then connecting the dots from the past to that event itself and then connecting it to the present day then it becomes part of our lives as part of our Mm -hmm. what I call shared memory and in really leading up to the for the massacre. Of course, it was a lot of just bad people doing bad things. And uh, a lot of people who made mistakes who probably later regretted their actions in the heat of the moment. But there are some things we can point to, both in the white community and in the black community, that provided this, this, this backdrop or this stage of history onto which everyone walked mm-hmm. in 1921. In the white community, Uh, You have to understand that Tulsa in 1921 was a boom town, an oil boom town. Mm -hmm. Many of the people who had come there came from someplace else looking for work and they could get highly paid jobs. And so you have a young, largely male population away from the controlling influences of home. You Mm -hmm. didn't in Tulsa away from their families in Arkansas or Kansas or Missouri or Illinois or whatever other state they're away from their aunts and their grandmother and their own mother who would know that you did something wrong mm-hmm. the next day because neighbors are, Oh, there's, there's item a son doing something wrong. And let item a, did you know, well here, they're removed from those influences. They're in this frontier boomtown. It's a very physical job. They're working with their hands uh outdoors uh it's a much more physical and even violent society in 1921 where the idea of a good time on a saturday night is get drunk get in a fight so right they went wait a minute get in a fight is a good time well at that moment male culture especially single male culture in the american west in a boomtown fighting was kind of uh, seen as a recreation so very physical so mm-hmm. confrontation uh, that's part of of who the people were then you throw on top of that culture, especially in Tulsa, is that you had long-term segregation. Oklahoma mm-hmm. is a southern state. And although right. Tulsa is more mid-Atlantic than the rest of Oklahoma, that's why Tulsa has always referred to themselves as the state of Tulsa. It mm-hmm. is different in terms of settlement patterns, There's a, especially mm-hmm. in the elite. The leadership, the, the founding fathers of the companies, they're largely from the oil patch in the mid-Atlantic. But even with that said, segregation was the law of the land in Oklahoma from the time uh, we become a state. Senate Bill number one had been to segregate the races, and it was just part of everyday life. So the white community is, is accustomed to segregation, and they're also used to uh, intimidate, use, using the tools of intimidation and terror mm-hmm. to keep yeah. the so-called, and they would have used this term at the time, colored community in control. Mm-hmm. In in their place where they should be, and mm-hmm. so if if a black person were to assault a white woman, especially, then that's reason for for terror and lynching. Uh, even looking at a white person in the eyes on the, without getting off the sidewalk, that white people that would be a moment when someone yeah. might be threatened, and their house or barn burned down, or some form of that. So that's the that's the white culture, and then you throw on top of that World War One. World War One. we entered the war in 1917 uh, in Oklahoma and across the country, there were councils of defense. These were not governmental institutions but they were voluntary groups. And really the best way to, to describe it is that vigilantes would come mm-hmm. together as councils of defense to enforce patriotism. If you were not patriotic enough or if you had a German sounding name and spoke with a German accent, you would be you would be on their list. Uh, right. There were Oklahoma towns that had to change their name. One town, was Berlin, changed that to Loyal, just to kind of get out of the way of this rampaging mm-hmm. nationalism and this sense of of demanding uh, uniformity. When I was in college, the Nixon generation would have called it "Love America or Leave It." You know, mm-hmm. they if you disagree with the war in Vietnam or disagreed with the American way of life or disagreed with American exceptionalism. Get out.
0: That you know, that's were, never happens anymore in no. the U.S.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, have Sorry. we have had a strong resurrection of that thing, So it is part of who we are. We have to be aware, but it was virulent in 1918 after the war with vigilantes, who were, and they were lynching white people who mm-hmm. weren't patriotic enough, as well as black people. We had over 200 lynchings in Oklahoma alone, is that this vigilantism was celebrated Way to go, guys. You showed that German. You showed that pacifist that they're. we're not going to tolerate it. They've got to buy these war bonds. Thanks for burning them. So you come out of that with this vigilante ethic accepted mm-hmm. and celebrated. So that's part of this. And then finally, you get the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And many people in Oklahoma misunderstand the Klan. The Klan was not organized to enforce segregation. That was already being enforced. It was de facto. It was the law. And it it was largely a reaction to what many evangelical rural Christians considered immorality. This is Mm -hmm. the age of the movies becoming part of American culture. They're seeing these these movie makers make these movies with almost semi-nudity at the time, with the sheikh of Arabia of seducing women. And this is coming into our little towns, the fighting against it. And this the progressive era had this side of this this almost uh evangelical christianity that says we want people to conform to this mm-hmm. and w- unwilling to accept that immorality so the clan is fed by this sense of we've got to enforce morality again if someone is cheating on their wife we're going to ride them out of town on a rail if someone is cheating people at the bank we're going to go in and we're going to show them well mm-hmm. of course it was a, from their point of view and you can imagine uh, yeah. what happened. So that's happening in the white community. Well, in the black community, uh, in Oklahoma, we have really two sets of black settlers. We have the descendants of the former slaves, the five civilized tribes. All mm-hmm. five tribes brought the institution of slavery here. There were large plantations. Robert uh, M. Jones of the Choctaw Nation had over 250 slaves on just his plantations alone. Wow. So slavery was very common. Really, the slaves legally were not freed in Oklahoma until 1866 in the Reconstruction treaties. But in those treaties, the federal government tells the Indian nations, whenever you distribute your land to individual Indians, you allot it. And they said that they saw it coming in 66. They said, you will give land to your former slaves and to their descendants. Mm-hmm. And so we call that group either freedmen or the territorial, as they would have said it at the time, territorial Negroes. But okay. that, that was the term they would use, territorial. So the roots go back to Indian country and mm-hmm. they had land. They had broken that cycle of poverty that, that many people fight against their entire life. My family, my family were still sharecroppers in 1925, mm-hmm. finally broke that, that cycle of poverty when my granddad came West, picked the cotton crop and got a job laying pipeline for ONG. Well, that land broke the cycle of poverty of these these formerly enslaved families. And when they get land from 1898 to 1904, then they tend to take their allotments near one another. You put 20 hardworking families on some good land and a good water valley. Suddenly you've got a town. Mm -hmm. And we have over 35 all-black towns in Oklahoma, uh, Bowley being the largest of over 5,000 people. Mm Rentiesville, I mentioned earlier, where John O. Franklin was born. These towns are prospering with agriculture. And so you have these little pockets of hope. And then even in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, you get segregated communities. In Oklahoma mm-hmm. City, it's called Deep Deuce, along 2nd right. Street, east of the Santa Fe Tracks, where it goes down into the riverbed. In Tulsa, it's called Greenwood, north mm-hmm. side of the tracks. And in these were vibrant communities within a community, all black, with movie theaters, businesses, newspapers, uh, physicians, attorneys, just life was right, rich. Right, right. Wasn't the segregated-
0: Greenwood called... Black Wall Street.
1: It was Booker T Washington yeah. Yeah. Uh, came and saw what was going on and says, this is a vibrant community with the money flowing out of Tulsa with oil and gas. It was coming to the black community too. And suddenly they were investing and things were going well. So Booker T came, wow, this is something unusual the black Wall Street. And so you throw that in and then finally on all of this you get this resentment that's built up because the segregation is imposed. Mm-hmm on the old Indian territory, which was not colorblind by any means, but it was less segregated than the old South. But here mm-hmm. 1907 where state and suddenly we imposed this strict old Southern segregation on it. And these like John Hope Franklin's dad, uh, B.C. Franklin, he had been raised in, in not a colorblind society, but largely he was able to do whatever he wanted. He had contracts. He became a learned man, got a law degree. But after statehood, he could not make a living in Ardmore because black people could not serve on juries. And so a black person wanting justice could not have a black attorney. They needed a white attorney who had influence Mm -hmm. with those white jurors. So he moved to Renniesville where John Hope was born. And so you have going backwards in 1907. Then finally, the impact of World War I. We can't dismiss that importance of wars in Oklahoma and, and World War One had an impact on the black community, is that African-Americans across the country, and especially here in Oklahoma, joined up to serve their country in greater numbers than the white community.
0: Mm-hmm. Indians,
1: even greater numbers, high percentage of this warrior culture wanted to serve, but many black Americans, well, the armed services were segregated until 1947, right. and Harry Truman, and so segregated. Well, these black regiments are put together, they're good fighting men, lots of ability, And here they go to France, ready to to defend democracy. The American generals do not want those black troops integrated into their white units. So -hmm. they say, "Ah, you got to stay back, go out and do this this mess duty. Well, the French general says, wait a minute. We want them in our lines. We're about Mm -hmm. to lose this war. The Germans in late 1917, early 19, they looked like they were going to win the war. Well, here come these black troops fighting next to their French comrades. And they fight bravely. Mm-hmm. And not only do they help win the war, but they're celebrated in France. These right. Frenchmen say, come into our restaurants, come into our homes. And if they were to kiss a white girl, say, hey, yes, you deserve it. You're our heroes. And so they had this experience in France. Well, here they come home after being celebrated, the sense of equality, the sense of celebrating their own worth. Now they're saying, no, no. You go back into second-class citizenship. We're not going to let you vote. We're not going to let you serve on a jury. We're not going to let you go to the schools you want to go to. We are going to force you to submit to this terrorism called lynching Mm -hmm. and intimidation. And yet, here's that resentment that grows even more. And then you bring up many of those young people back to Oklahoma where they're making good wages in the oil patch or in the white community, and many of them say, we're not going to take it anymore. Those are the conditions on one side, the racism, the physical, celebrating vigilantes. The other side, resentment, building up experience, fighting battles and this idea that, hey, no, we're doing OK. We are capable of more. And so you get these two communities with with tender laid around yeah. the community that's dry and ready for the match.
0: Ready for just one and thing. That's,
1: and that's when it really starts.
0: Yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. a. Have- powder keg waiting to go off um well that was very informative (laughs) just just that part so um i i'm ready for more (laughs) okay well
1: uh, into this powder keg and that was a good description you you use there um two young people dick roll a young african-american male sarah page a young white woman uh we're not sure. In retrospect, it looks like they did have a romance going. Mm-hmm. And Sarah was operating an elevator in a downtown building. Of Dick, in the white press, tried to later say, "Oh, this is Diamond Dick. He's this uppity guy that caused all this trouble." Well, he was just this kid trying to make a living. He was shining shoes downtown, mm-hmm. and he need he needed when he needed to go to the restroom. He had to go into a white-owned facility because it was the Everything around him would have been white owned at the time. Right, right. And we don't know exactly what happened because both Dick Rowland and Sarah Page would disappear after the massacre. So no one ever got to interview them about this. They were never prosecuted. And as far as we know, they disappear from history. We hmm. offered uh, uh, bonuses for people who could find them. We went through all the Social Security death records. We did searches with other state historical societies. Just, this literally disappear from the pages of history. But we 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 know what people claimed happened. They claimed that Dick Rowland went onto that elevator and assaulted mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Page. Uh, Dick runs out. Sarah is there. Apparently, part of her clothing is torn, according to the news press. And word spreads real quickly. Black male attacks a white woman. Well, in the South, for decades, that had been reasons for lynching. Mm-hmm. Well, what, yeah. spreads. Uh, The county sheriff gets involved, arrests Dick. He's there. He said, yeah, me, and I didn't do anything. But they take him to the county courthouse. Well, that is on uh, May 30th, 1921. And so all of this is happening um, on, on, on May 30th. And we do know that newspaper covered it. We have the articles, you know, of what happened. Well, there's a mystery in all of this in, in leading up to the actual event is that some people would claim that the T- Tulsa Tribune, the newspaper at the time, similar to the Oklahoma mm. City Times and Oklahoma City afternoon newspaper, uh, ran an inflammatory editorial. Are we going to let this black community do this to one of our white girls? That's the claim mm. that that was there. And it was like, come to action was like somebody who will remain unnamed saying, go up there and fight. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Uh, the, the big lie. And so it was this inflammatory, at, we got to do something about it. Well, for whatever reason. And it, and even though a lot of people obsessed about that missing editorial, and in our newspapers of the Historical Society collected at the time, there is a section of the editorial page cut out. Hmm. Circumstantial evidence makes it look like there was a cover of it sometime in the past. Who knows? Yeah. Well, we offered a $5,000 reward of anyone who could come up with that editorial. Pub, we published that in Jet Magazine, other public congregation around the country, nothing showed up. But whether it happened or not to me is irrelevant because just the event alone would have been enough to start the spark that started mm-hmm. the fire. And we do know that by the afternoon of May 31st, uh, Dick Rowland is in the county jail. The sheriff knows about the rumors on the streets. He disables the elevators in that county courthouse. He puts Dick on the top floor. He puts an armed guard on the stairwell going up, barricades it, says, guys, anybody who tries to get in here take Dick, shoot them. Those are the orders from the county sheriff at the time. Well, but word spreads around town. If the editorial is published, it inflamed it even more. But we do know that about by 8.20 p.m. that night of May 31st, uh, we get about a thousand white young males gathered around the courthouse demanding that they turn over Dick Rowland or them. They're going to show them justice if they can't do this. And we need to use this old trick of of terrorism and lynching Mm -hmm. to make sure they don't do it again. Would have been so a thousand of these guys, probably alcohol flowing freely, even though Oklahoma is a dry state, theoretically, it never was, it's always a wet state, which is illegal at the time. But Mm -hmm. imagine these young males in the oil patch that have money in their pocket, pint of whiskey in another pocket, probably a gun in the back pocket, looking for a good time of a good fight Uh, around here. Say, hey, that would be fun. Let's go lynch this guy. So they've gathered. Well, word gets back across the tracks in Greenwood. And we do know in one of the movie theaters, there's a group gathered and they start talking. Some of the community leaders say, you know what's happening across the tracks? Our buddy Dick is in the jail and a crowd is trying to do what they've always done, intimidate us. They're trying to lynch him. We need to go help the county sheriff. Mm-hmm. So we do know that by nine o'clock, 25 armed black males, many of whom World War I veterans who knew how to defend themselves, right. knew about group action. Well, they get in their cars and they drive into the white part of town. And I always say these to me are the unspoken heroes. Imagine mm-hmm. this. A thousand, a thousand, angry
0: thousand twenty-five. White guys. Yeah.
1: In 25 moving into their quote their part of town away from our neighbors away from the people who could help us and going in and, and talking to the sheriff sheriff we're here to help you the sheriff says we don't need you i've got it under control it's on the top floor disabled the elevators have these armed guards so those 25 go back across the tracks well word gets out these uppity you know what uh, mm-hmm. have confronted us there they have a gall to try to break this social order that's part of our community fabric. They are talking back. They're threatening us. And so even more, and we know by 9.30 that night, so just 30 minutes later, here's another thousand angry white kids still drinking, thinking, let's lynch this guy. Let's storm it. Word gets back across the tracks. This time, more people have gathered, uh, and this time, 75 mm-hmm. young black men say we have got to do something we cannot stand by again and right. let one of our neighbors be lynch so here they come again at 9 30 more booze more guns more people more opportunities for a, an accident or a mistake and as they get close they can't get right to the courthouse but a couple of blocks away they get out of the cars and they're marching together down mm-hmm. the pavement and you can imagine in your mind this intoxicated uh violent crowd that's looking for action and they've been denied the action by the county sheriff's action and they see fewer people and then in groups of numbers group mentality that's the way yeah. violence starts so many times you get thrown into this this flow of mob action and somehow they start moving forward the two groups meet guns are drawn up in the air pistols are in the hands people are threatening. According to one pretty good account, uh, one of the white mobsters tries to take a gun away from one of the, the black men. A shot is fired. A body hits the ground. Blood flows. Guns come out. Bang. This is a shootout on the streets of downtown Tulsa in 1921. Wow. The sort of thing you think you'd see at O.K. Corral or in the Old right. West on the dirt streets of some you know frontier town. Well, this was in an urban community of Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, a gunfight on the ground. And we do know that about 20 people were either wounded or killed on that Mm -hmm. very
0: moment. Wow.
1: But in that action, of course, with the guns firing, people start getting away from the gun. People don't want to get shot, whether they're white or black. So they start backing off and those young black men get back in their cars and start back towards Greenwood in the safety of greater numbers. The white mob is incensed at this time and the chief of police, the Tulsa chief of police, in my opinion, one of the bad guys of this entire episode. Yes. says I'm going to deputize a bunch of you guys. We we think that he deputized about 500 people. And at that time, he just says, raise your right hand. I swear that I'm going to defend law and order of Tulsa and I am hereby deputized. Yes, 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 yes. About 500 of those inflamed young people looking for a fight now think they have the law on their side
0: mm-hmm. and
1: to them. These 75 young men have violated the law because now our chief of police and they violated the law. Let's get in he issues in an order. And we've got it from multiple sources. I believe it's true. He said, and it's a quote, and I'm not going to use the second word. I just can't get myself to do it. Get a gun, get a with the mm. word. Yeah. Get a yeah. gun, get a basically get a gun. Let's go get them, boys. Uh, the mob tries to break into the local uh, National Guard armory. The guardsmen don't let them do it, but they break in to. Uh, The shops in downtown getting guns and ammunition. Mm -hmm. And basically, it's mob action breaking in and getting the guns, going home, getting guns, calling people saying, Hey, Joe, we're having a lot of fun down here. Come get in the crowd. We're going to show these guys. And so the mob keeps growing. And we really believe by the early morning hours that the white mob grew to 10,000 people. Wow. Talk about mob mentality. 10,000 people who have been joining this group. Alcohol still going. It's a big party. Let's go get them. So as they try to move towards Greenwood, these young black men now are surrounded by their friends and family Mm -hmm. with guns, with the knowledge of how to set up perimeters, how to set up snipers in elevated positions, how to put together a defense. And these young white guys who are mob and just silly with rage uh, are shot at. And they back off. Mm-hmm. And so you have a stalemate initially with the Black troops and their friends and neighbors defending Greenwood mm-hmm. uh, around the tracks that are there in Tulsa even to this day. Um, and so
0: could I interrupt ahead. real quick? Please. I've, do. I've heard that um, biplanes dropped bombs into Greenwood. Was that true? And is this because it was so well defended? Perhaps why, if it did happen?
1: Well, uh, the real fighting began in the dark of, of midnight. Mm. Planes at that time were not flown at night. You flew mm-hmm. during the daytime. You didn't right. have instrument reading. These are canvas colored planes. And the canvas is covered with a, a creosote kind of material. So very flammable. Uh, and we had one volunteer who knew aviation. He went to all of the airports in the civil Aviation Administration pulling up all the records because aviation has always been heavily regulated since the Mm -hmm. early days. So how many planes were registered, which ones were checked out, flight hours and all? His opinion was is that, yeah, there were airplanes within the vicinity that could have been there by the the midnight hours. But he says it is unlikely that there were bombs dropped from those. Now, that's one consultant. We Mm -hmm. still don't know what happened. There's no way to disprove something. Okay. Like you can't prove it happened. But there are eyewitness accounts that there were airplanes. Uh, one scenario could be that there's an airplane flying over so you could hear the airplane's engine. And then you see an explosion because of a gas line. Because uh, we yeah, do know yeah. that the fire started at 1 a.m. Okay. So the fires are starting at 1 a.m. So you have these explosions here, here, and here. People are setting fire to buildings and all. And you hear airplanes. It's very easy to imagine. Yeah, they just threw a bomb over there. It may have happened. I'm not okay. here to say it didn't, uh, but I might side with the it's unlikely, but we'll never know. Okay. Could well, thank you. It I've wondered not, that. It, 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 there was plenty of violence and anger and just you know bad behavior without yeah. airplane. Uh, there's also stories about machine guns being leveled and, and guardsmen uh, being part of the mob We looked at all of those issues, and again, you have evidence on both sides, some eyewitness accounts, but in the heat of battle, people's memories uh, leap to things, and memory Mm -hmm. is always kind of a, you know, you and I could meet tomorrow and talk about our conversation today, and we're going to make 20% mistakes in what we remember about this conversation. That's just human nature. Mm -hmm. Oral history is never a primary source of evidence, so maybe it happened. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, the surfers' fires are set. The battle continues throughout the night. We do know at 2.15 a.m., the National Guard is mobilized. Uh, the mayor of Tulsa contacts the governor. They had telephones at the time, says, Governor, uh, I'm declaring the state of emergency, and I'm asking for the guard. The governor acts immediately, saying, by law, the mayor can ask for it. He mobilizes. He calls his generals and colonels and majors and captains and lieutenants, He says, gather your men, get on the train, get to Tulsa. So we know they're mobilized at 2.15. Next thing we know, that dawn hits that day at 5.08.
0: That's when the,
1: you know, if if you you watch the sun come up, you have some light before you actually see the sun. As it's beginning to poke over, you have a little bit of halo, and then it becomes light. Well, at that moment, 5.08, a siren goes off. No one knows what the siren was. Uh, we can't prove who did it, where it came from, but people have pretty good memories. And it came from multiple sources. A siren went off. Well, a lot of, of the white and the black population of the time consider that a signal, time to attack. Mm-hmm. And in as the sun comes up, much of the mob is ready to go. Many of the black defenders have run out of ammunition. Many of them have been wounded. And so mm-hmm. they are fleeing. And people are leaving the community, the fires. So your first reaction, how do we get away from the violence? So families are already leaving and mm-hmm. moving out. Some are going into the, to the white communities where their employers are protecting them. I have many stories of that. Many more are just moving farther north towards communities where they would end up and, and in shelters. But this attack, and by this time with 10,000 white mobsters, they basically break down the perimeter defense of the community yeah. and they start getting through. Uh, there's one instance of some white, cocky young white guys who get in the car. Says, Come on, boys, follow us like they're Custer charging mm-hmm. into into a, a, an Indian village. Well, they're wiped out because those soldiers on the other side in Greenwood are still pretty, pretty talented. But anyway, the mob starts to moving forward, basically overrun what defense is still there. Lack of ammunition. And the mobsters are now joined by the criminal element. And in many of the books that are done, Randy Crables, to me, is the best in terms of detail. Oh, you Press published that two years ago. But Randy's book talks about some of the criminal element. They know who the gangsters were, those running the bordellos and the gambling institutions, the running alcohol. Well, of course, they're there by this time saying, hey, what's in this for us? So many of them are the ones who are looting the houses of mm-hmm. the black residents and taking stuff away. And there are instances of just downright murder. There's one black doctor coming out saying, hey, guys, I'm not I'm here, but, you know, I'm not armed." Bang, killing. We do know that that happened. So just blood red killings, um, mm-hmm. but looting fire start. And of course, with the natural gas and the fire spreading a town made mostly of wood, the fire right. spread. And we do know that the National Guard arrives by train at 9.15 a.m. And there have been planes. That's when most people think they heard airplanes in those early morning hours. So from 5.08 to 9 o'clock, you have four hours of this fighting. And and that's when people said they heard airplanes. Some people thought it was just sightseers, people looking. Uh, It could have been bombed. We don't know. But by this time, the bombs weren't needed. Right. Because the mob was moving through and going house to house and burning and looting. and the, But once the National Guard gets there at 915, and much of this is misunderstood, too, their strategy, what do, they, what do we do? So the commanding officers on the ground think, how are we going to get some control here? Uh, their idea was to round up the black population as the minority and to protect them. Mm-hmm. To, yes, take their guns away. To take them to what they would consider a defensible perimeter, uh, some of these, these open spaces in the community, and they start trying to take guns away from white guys at the same time. But their attention, was so a lot of people have claimed that the National Guard was taking them to slaughter, that uh, you know, making them an easy target. Actually, I really believe the Guard acted honorably that day, mm-hmm. taking them to where they could be protected and taken away from harm's way. But by doing that, they're not defending the homes that are still being burned, the businesses that are being burned. So all this is happening in real time with the smoke and the confusion of people running and shouting and bodies being carried here in the blood on the asphalt. And all oh, they're trying to get this this sense of order. And eventually by mid morning, most of the guns are down. Most of the crowds are dispersing. And you have the 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 camps. Uh, where the black population remained, many had already fled. Uh, We think there might have been as many as 10,000 African-Americans in Tulsa when it began. By this Mm -hmm. time, it's probably well less than half of that. And uh, the National Guard finally gets that sense of order. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: the Red Cross, which to me is one of the hero organizations uh, and a good reason to still give to the Red Cross, even if you disagree with some things, That in this particular instance, they came in, set up, their triage, trying to help, uh, trying to figure out what happened. How can we calm these, these frayed nerves and prevent further violence? And the Red Cross would eventually write a really good report on what happened. To me, it's the best documentation uh, from the eyewitnesses. But there were individuals who would write reports uh, in all of this, you know, as part of the historian's task of trying to sift all of this together and come out with what we think happened. And But one thing we do know from the Red Cross, from other accounts of the time, the press covering all this, we do know that more than 1,200 homes were burned. We know that there were at least 215 homes looted with the Mm -hmm. furniture taken out, the jewelry, anything of value. We know that 159 businesses were burned to the ground. We do know that the estimated damage at that time was 1.5 million in damage. Wow. Today, it would be a you know, horrendous figure, but at that time, mm-hmm. 1.5 million. And the official death count at the time was 27. That okay. We do know 27, most of them uh, black individuals, but also some white individuals who were killed from the very beginning of the action. And that's what we know happened. And then we start talking about the legacy as it comes forward. Uh, we do know that no one was ever prosecuted in the courts. Mm-hmm. No people from the black community or the white community were ever pulled into the court to say, you did this illegally. No mm-hmm. one ever did that. There were lawsuits filed, civil lawsuits. And John Hope Franklin's dad, B.C., had his office burned. He set up office in a tent in representing his black neighbors and they filed lawsuits. We do know that zero of those lawsuits were ever adjudicated. They were finally mm-hmm. dismissed in the 1930s. The Historical Society at the History Center has the original files of those court cases. Oh, wow. Uh, And of course, they've all been microfilmed accessible to researchers. Uh, And all of those have accounts of what happened. This is a property I lost. This is who did it. We think that the city and the county and these individuals are responsible. We want compensation. We do know that the insurance companies of that day and time told both the white business owners and the black business owners who lost property that there is a Small print in their insurance policies that, in case of a riot, there are no damages paid, mm. and so they invoke that little small print at the back. Say, "This is a riot." That's where we come up with the historians always calling this a riot mm-hmm. until the last couple of years when we we more tellingly and, and rightfully say, "No, it's a massacre."
0: Right. But
1: at, when at first it's a riot because the insurance companies call it a riot and they right, have right. to pay, so no one gets compensation. Think about the loss of wealth. Well, about half of the properties or somewhere in that range were owned by white property owners who had built buildings for this prosperous black community. But there were many black business owners who lost as well. So the insurance companies we know never paid. There was never justice in the courts. Then you start this long period of shared memory in the white community and the black community. And John Hope Franklin helped me come up with this phrase. And I can't remember if he used it first or I used it first. It doesn't matter. We call it a conspiracy of silence.
0: Mm-hmm. is
1: that both the black community and the white community agreed not to talk about it anymore, to make it an mm. issue. Not in the history books, not part of the dialogue in the community. Well, in the white community, it was a sense of embarrassment. It's not good for business for the rest of the mm-hmm. world to think. Tulsa, you could have an entire part of town burned down, looted, people murdered on the streets with, with a mob out of control. That's not good. Chamber of Commerce. Right. Bragging rights. So the chamber crowds say, Whoa, whoa we got to suppress this memory. Say, we're over this mess. Well, in the, and then there's some embarrassment too. People finally come to their senses. Wait a minute. I'm a good black Christian. I believe that, you know, sanctity of life, but I was part of the mob. Ooh, little regret. So let's not talk about it. I don't want my kids to know about it, or my grandkids. Right. It's not something you're going to brag about. Although there was some of that too, as there is today, even. But you have in the black community, Fear that it could happen again. John Franklin brought this message to our first meeting, and he says, and he grew up in Tulsa after this. He was just like two, or three years old at the time. And he said, We really believe it could happen again. It happened once, it could happen again. So let's not, let's not test the waters. Mm-hmm. And he said, Secondly, and to me, this is even more important, he said, in the Black community, there was a sense of pride that those 25 young black men, those 75 young black men had the courage to say no more of this injustice. We're gonna stand up for our rights and the rights of our neighbors and our family members. He said there was a sense of pride. When they talked mm-hmm. about those guys, yes, they did it. They, yeah. they had lost, but they tried. And he said, but if we had expressed that on the streets or in public, we would have been, uh, our house might have been burned down. There would have been a flaming cross uh, put on our streets mm-hmm. that we are threatening the, right. the rightful social order of the time. So this sense of pride that could not be expressed, part of the silence, fear it might happen again, part of the silence, embarrassment, not good for business. Let's not talk about it. It just mm-hmm. goes away. Yeah.
0: Um, so the
1: textbook I would have had as a kid had no mention of the Tulsa
0: Race Massacre. Yep. Mine didn't either when I was in school in the 80s. The the 25 sounds like a modern 300 Spartans, if mm-hmm. you think about it, in terms yeah. of the cojones needed <laughs> to do yeah. that. And yeah. yeah, just that is some bravery that I don't think most people understand they needed at the time.
1: Well, a, another good uh, analogy would be those those protesters, white and black, in Selma, Alabama, mm-hmm. marching towards yeah. the dogs and the fire hoses, mm-hmm. and the the racist sheriff at the time. He said, "We're going to butt heads," and gave his guys clubs. Says, "Let's get, mm-hmm. boys. Yeah. And those people had that bravery. The difference by that time, it's on television, coming into right. our homes, saying, "Wait a minute, this is happening in our America." Suddenly, the rest of the country says that is not right and things yeah. change 1921 no television it was yeah. not part of daily life and it was fairly easy for the mm-hmm. majority to just kind of sweep it under the rug and not until 1971 was there a, really an article published a young man named Don Ross a journalist grew up in in Tulsa later a legislator who sponsored the legislation giving us the resources and the authority to do the investigation. Don wrote a story on the 50th anniversary. Others started writing about it, thinking about it, talking about it. By the 80s, there's a book uh, by Scott Ellsworth. Death mm-hmm. in the Promised Land was a was a very appropriate title of that book. OU Press would not publish it even in the 80s. Wow. Uh, part of our social is published LSU Press that had a little wow. different attitude, and it wasn't embarrassing to them. It's still right. embarrassing in Oklahoma. So there was, you know, a little bit of pressure not to publish it. And then you come along with the Tulsa Centennial in 97 and 98. Uh, It's not something to be proud of, acknowledge it, but, you know, publish it. Let's have these seminars about it. But still, it's not the main focus. The focus is oil and gas. These pioneers that carved a civilization out of the wilderness, Mm -hmm. you know, this diversity and all. So, you know, wouldn't do that. And then when we came out with our commission report, it really didn't satisfy anybody. People were still saying, well, those blacks got what was coming to them. They broke the law. And then we also had people in the black community saying that was a conspiracy. You know, right. the white folks wanted us out and we've been planning this for years, both extreme opinions. Uh and it was easy to see how it happened. And we had to deal with the issue of reparations. We decided yes, reparations were necessary for the healing process, but it should be individual to individual. Chamber of Commerce agreed to lead a fundraising drive for direct reparations to individuals, which is what eventually happened just recently. And then the community would go to community to community. Let's let's have a museum. Let's have a mm-hmm. memorial, which, and state funding provided that. We, the historical society was in the middle of that. What became the John Hope Center for Reconciliation it was state funded. Uh, the city of Tulsa contributed to that. That was community to community. Let's mm-hmm. make sure no one forgets about it again. Let's not sweep right. it under the rug. And so the center was there. The annual ceremonies on the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Center. What they're doing. The, Uh, the museum exhibits, the exhibit in the history center that we have there in 2005 is part of this awakening Mm -hmm. that we've got to let people know. It's working its way into the curriculum. It's on the state standards now to be taught in the schools. Well, there was an evolutionary change in those years. But as we saw, even with the centennial last year in 2021, there's still a divided community. Mm -hmm. Some said it's enough to have for the the philanthropic community to to donate more than $20 million for that museum, Greenwood Rising. I love the mm. title of it. That's really it should be the story of Greenwood Rising, not Greenwood Burning. Uh, right, because right. It had we have to have a message of hope and reconciliation. Uh, but 20 million from the private community go into that. Uh, state money is being spent. Uh, Senator Matthews, one of my little heroes in this, this entire episode, stepped up and said, I'm going to lead this the state effort to be a partner in telling this story Mm -hmm. and making sure it's not just the philanthropic community but it's the grassroots community but even with all of that you still have some standing up at the end saying it's not enough we need reparations for these individuals these survivors it's not enough to to say you're sorry uh we need more and uh, this never-ending cycle of uh really using more the message of victims and there are victims still Mm -hmm. are yeah but Emphasizing that over-reconciliation and the the upside of diversity and what we had lost and how we need to understand what has changed and how much we still need to change. Racism is still part of our society across the country, around the world. Sadly. In Tulsa, in Oklahoma City, we see it. We hear it. Uh, we see it at the national level, uh, with you know, highest people really spouting kind of a racist philosophy yes. and typically. The, the biggest racists are those who say, well, I'm not a racist. I'm, you know, I've got black friends. Generally, you hear that a lot, but it's mm-hmm. still part of our lives. How do we deal with it? How do we understand it? How do we prevent violence? How do we prevent? How do we break the cycle of poverty? How do we mm-hmm. make sure all people have access to housing and nutrition and opportunities in the workplace, to education? For too long, it was denied a
0: mm-hmm. section
1: of our population because it was accepted we have to agree to say it can no longer be accepted. We have to stamp it out. We have to join arm in arm in March and not leave it to 75 young men to say, we're not going to accept anymore. We're all going to say, we're not going to accept it anymore. It's still too much a part of our lives. We still need to study it, understand it, deal with it, have this dialogue. So in terms of, of the study that I headed, the latest effort that really came out of Tulsa, I applaud those efforts of trying to discover what happened. And as you can see, historians have a role in this. That's why mm-hmm. that's why we're a state agency, Jack, yep. uh, funded with by the taxpayers with this authority to collect, preserve, and share. And many of the records studied things that we had preserved. We're trying to catch up for things we did not collect and preserve. Mm-hmm. We now know better than the generation that was collecting in the 1920s and 30s. Right. Uh, the next generation will understand things we don't understand, but we have to try. And so the support for the Historical Society, Historic right. preservation office where you work, is necessary for us to grow as a mm-hmm. community and to continue to get better. And with this, this, the central theme of hope, that mm-hmm. yes, I hope we will get better. And we need individuals to say, yes, I hope and believe that we can improve as individuals as communities, and see where we've gone wrong
0: in the past. That's I'm I'm having a hard time <laughs> putting words together. Um, thanks for the rarity of that. Yeah, you're you're correct. A uh, journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step, and people do need to lock arms. And the whole, the whole story is just overwhelming of what happened. But you're right. The the collecting and preserving is important. I'm glad to work at a place that has led the way in that, in a lot of respects. And I'm I'm just having a hard time putting words together yeah. right now, yeah. which is, isn't good for a talking format. Um, but yeah, wow. No. Well, you know, in
1: that also, it's like your friend that you grew up with that has opened mm-hmm. your eyes. I'm sure you've helped her. The, the role that Bruce Fisher played in my life, the role that John O. Franklin, the role that Ruby Hall played, uh, some of these people I've worked with in the All Black Towns and the Coltrane group, uh, I've learned so much. And this journey that I personally have been on has has been very uh, enriching and mm-hmm. helped me understand the community that I tried to to do something about connecting the dots of history. We have yeah. to be able to connect these dots as well as the dots of the the entrepreneurs and the educators and the public servants and the government officials and the people doing the right thing in our churches and our schools. We have to understand all of that connected us, but it has to be over on this other side as well. So uh, fortunately, and, it, and it's proven by your uh, determination to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may not know it, but you and I have, have missed several opportunities to get this done over the last <laughs> yeah. month. But you reached out to me and would not let, let it go when we when we it's an important do it subject. Plan, he says, no, this is too important. So the fact that you were that persistent mm-hmm. shows that the community in general wants to know more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's still some to say, oh, haven't we done that to death? Let's forget about it. We can't. We yeah. cannot forget about it. We have to keep talking about it. And thank mm-hmm. you for doing that on your podcast uh, this time.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. And to build on what you said, Kenyatta and I always say everything should start with love. Even if you don't know the person, you don't know what someone's going through outside of, you know, the context you're seeing in them, them in. And you should start everything from a position of love. And even though that's hard, yeah. that's well, the, the, well, the best I'm starting place. You,
1: you, well, I'm glad you use that word. My wife is a person of faith. Uh, her, she starts with God is love. Mm-hmm. And really, that's the universal truth. That that's where we really have to start. And those mm-hmm. who cannot put love in their heart are suffering, yeah. and will never have the joy of understanding and uh, and love and feeling a sense of we're all bound in this together. So you're right. It's got to start yeah. with love.
0: Yeah. And something else, Kenyatta and I say the greatest sound in the world is a baby laughing. And when you hear one laughing. Like in a store, you don't know the color of the laughing baby, but it's the greatest sound in the world. It is. And, yeah, you know, that starts with love.
1: <laughs> so That's right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jack, for all you do.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. It was nice of the weather to give us a snow day so we could knock this out. Um, I, once again, really appreciate you coming on. And I'm going to... uh I guess, and go ahead and end it. But first, do you have any books or anything coming out that you'd like to plug real quick? <laughs> well, I'm having a good time. I've, re- I've been retired. Uh,
1: last Monday was my one-year anniversary of retirement. I've mm-hmm. retired February 1 and 21. But I've made the mistake of saying yes. I've got to learn how to say no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and once I started getting my tax records, I've, I've been consulting all year. And I had six projects that I worked on this year. Some are still going into the next year. I'm redesigning one of the big ones. I'm redesigning the museum on the Oklahoma Military Academy in Claremore. My dad wow. taught there. My family's from Claremore on the Blackburn mm-hmm. side. And so I, I jumped at the chance to work with the Alumni Association. Larry Rice, president of RSU. It's on the campus. They support it. And so I'm in the middle of redesigning the entire museum. We're, it's a half a million dollar project. But I've also been working on a variety of projects in Colony where I've learned about the Seeger experiment with Shine Arapahoe. Having a great time. Worked on the AAA's Route 66 Festival. That'll be coming Mm -hmm. up in June in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Been working. I finished a book on Manhattan Construction Company based in Tulsa. That'll be out soon. And I'm working on some other books. So, yeah, keep going.
0: Well, we appreciate all that you do.